Um, man, about a month, month and a half ago, um, we gave the stage to um, our newest member of the Re3 staff, Quentin Ayers, who came on about six months ago as our youth pastor. And he just knocked it out of the park. And, and to his detriment, probably, because I told him this morning, he set the bar so high that very first time, you can only go down. So me, I set the bar so low, as you heard a couple weeks ago on my very first sermon, I'm still trying to reach your level. So so it's given me 25 years to build up to where you already are. But we are excited to have Quentin as part of our teaching team, um, not just in youth ministry, but here on Sunday mornings. And so we're going to give the stage to him once again, and I know he's going to do an awesome job. So uh, Quentin, come on up. Hello, can you hear me? Is it? Is it working? It's good? All right. Awesome. I have to put that on the floor. Um, how's everyone doing this morning? You guys uh, made it. You bared all the horrendous weather out there. And you guys online, you guys are probably way more comfortable than we are. <laughs> good morning, everyone. Like Mike said, I'm the youth pastor here at Project Re3. I also recently began um, a job teaching high school Bible at a uh, Christian school in Winston-Salem, which means my life has pretty much went from being bullied by teenagers once a week to now being bullied by teenagers six days out of the week, which, um, that's the American dream, probably, I would imagine. Um, Yeah, so my life is relationships now. I mean, that's just pretty much all I'm dealing with. You know, like high schoolers, they're all talking about relationships, whether they're trying to get into one with someone else. Um, They're talking about relationships, whether they've just gotten out of one and now their hearts are broken and the world is falling apart around them. And you have all that silly stuff with high school relationships, which you have also the more serious stuff. You have the beginning of new awesome friendships that maybe go for a lifetime. You have maybe the ending of childhood friendships. And so I deal with relationships a lot. Uh, I'm in the business of relationships. I'm definitely in relational ministry. When I was a part of Marywood Christian Camp, that was our big theme, relational ministry. We only had kids there for a week at a time, so we knew that come Monday morning, we had to start digging in as much as we could. We have to show our own vulnerability, and we have to get them to try to open up so we can just create that bridge, that trust, that relationship, so we can carry the truth of cross, so we can carry the truth of Christ across. And so I've been working relationships a lot. So then when, this, when Mike and Tim and I sat down and we were talking about, well, what are some things that people might not think matter anymore, might struggle to realize how important they are because of COVID, because of this, because of that, when relationships came up, I was like, oh, I'll take that. You know, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with that. And as I started digging in stuff, I realized we're all pretty familiar with that. You know, relationships are all of our lives. No matter what you do for work, no matter where you go for work, no matter if you're working or not. You are in the business of relationships with your coworkers, with your spouses, with your children, with your parents, with the guy that drops your pizza off. I mean, you are always communicating. Whether verbally or non-verbally, we are all in the business of relationships. Now, the question we have to answer is, do they matter? Because we all are going to be in relationships every day. We are going to be in unity or disunity with someone every day. And the question we have to answer is, does it matter or why it matters? And no one knew better than relationships than Paul. I mean, Paul was really familiar with the idea of relationships. And he talks about this in Ephesians. We're in Ephesians 4 right now. Ephesians 4, 1 through 7 is what we're, we're working with today. And, and Paul was very familiar with the idea of Ephesians. He says this. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called uh, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time together this morning. Let us just understand um, about, more about relationships, about your relationship with us, our relationship with others. Let us realize that it does matter, and you say it matters. Let's have a fire to build this unity with each other, this unity that doesn't reflect ourselves, but reflects you. God, if there's anything I say this morning that is not completely parallel with your word, let it be forever forgotten, and only your intent and your word be remembered. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so the first question we have to dive into, what we have to dive into anytime we get into any book or any verse or any passage, is the context. What is the context? And if you guys remember last week, if you watched a sermon or you were here for the sermon last week, Mike talked about family matters. Now, family matters from Ephesians 6. And that's kind of the way that Ephesians is structured. The first three chapters are heavy doctrine. Heavy doctrine. And the last three chapters are heavy application. So Mike was very true to the text because it was a very practical sermon. It was a very practical passage. And right now, where I'm at in Ephesians 4 is we are just like right in the middle. I mean, we are in the very, very middle of the structure. So we are just now starting to shift from this heavy, beautiful doctrine into now practicality to application. And so we are, it's kind of like a funnel. Everything is moving through this one passage I just read. John MacArthur talks about that therefore in that, first, uh, that very first verse we read. He says that therefore marks the transition from doctrine to duty, from position to behavior. And this is typical of Paul. Paul does this in a lot of his books, but in Ephesians it's really nice because it's really simple the way it's laid out. And Paul also has a, a special kind of relationship with the church of Ephesus. You see, he is a prisoner when he's writing this book. But before that, he was the pastor of Ephesus for about three years. He has a lot of love for the congregation. He knows them very well. And after his time there, when he went on to go do other things, he had Timothy be there for about a year, year and a half. And after Timothy's time there, there was a kind of a mix-up. Somewhere along that line, false teachers entered the church. And all this false teaching came in and began to taint what Paul had been building and what Timothy had worked on. And the church had been riddled now with false teaching, and they started to get divisive. And so Paul was writing Ephesus because he loves them. And he loves them, and the way that he thinks that we get this false teaching out is through unity. You know, it reminds me that what, when you read in uh, verse five, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. You know how we say like the Pledge of Allegiance? I say it like every day now again because I'm back in school. Um, but we talk about one nation under God. You guys know that? That part, one nation? I mean, that's what we, we love the idea of one nation, of unity. We love that. We love when our political speakers, when, they, when, they, when our politicians, when they speak on unity, we're like, oh, that's a, that's a great speech. And we love the idea of unity but we live divisiveness because something we love even more than messages on unity or slander messages or hate um, rhetoric are just tearing down your opponents because we live that and we can really identify with that. But we love the idea of unity. We talk about one nation, but I mean, it has just not felt like one nation in 2020. It has not felt like one nation in 2021. That's because we yearn for the idea of unity, but we live in our lives divisiveness. As we live every day. And so when we get to this passage, it's so topical right now, why relationships matter. Because unity matters. And I think the only reason we think relationships don't matter is because we don't have a correct understanding or interpretation of what relationships are, what real relationships are. 
what Christian unity is. And when we fall away from that definition, that true definition of what it is, then it really doesn't matter. But when we know what real relationship is, when real unity is, well, what it really is, then it does matter. And so what we're going to be talking about today, if you're like taking notes, just draw a line right down the middle of your page. We're going to be talking about what real relationships are on one side and what real relationships are not. And they're going to be the total opposite of each other. So what real relationships are and what real relationships are not. The first thing that Paul talks about real relationships are is their suffering. You see that in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, um, bearing. That word bearing means suffering. And you do it with, you do this suffering with humility and gentleness and patience. All those three things, all those three characteristics show themselves with bearing with one another. Real relationships are suffering. Real relationships are not abandoning. Real relationships are suffering. Real relationships are not abandoning. Now, I know about having to suffer in a relationship. I'm a fan of the Washington football team. They are... They are historically bad, and since my birth, they have continued to be historically bad. And so I know about, and, and a lot of my sports teams are not great. And the reason I like usually not great sports teams historically is because when they do win, it's like, whoa, like it's a big deal. It's not like one of those teams that goes every time. And we kind of get that, if you're a fan of sports, you kind of get that. You're like, yes, when, you're, when your home team, when your team that doesn't usually win, wins, you're like, yes. But then when you see these other fans... Like all these Tampa Bay fans all of a sudden come out of nowhere, and you're like, what? You, you've never said you like Tampa Bay before. Or last year, when all these Kansas City Chief fans, where have they been? You know, they start coming out of the woodwork. We get angry at them. We call them bandwagoners. We're like, you guys aren't real fans. You guys aren't real fans of football. And so we get that. We get suffering in sports. But yeah, when we come to our own friendships, when we come to our own marriages, our own relationships, our own relationships in the church, one person says one thing wrong to us, we're gone. One person asks one thing of us that, that may cause some uncomfortability. And we're gone. We're out of there. Because that's just too much right now. You have COVID. You have all this political stuff. You have your jobs. You have your work. And that is just too much to ask for me to have to maintain this relationship that I have to actually work at. That's where we fall away. And if relationships are just abandoning, then relationships don't matter. But what Paul's talking about is real relationships. Real relationships that matter. Real relationships are suffering. And suffering is not abuse, by the way. Suffering is not abuse. Oppression is not peace. Silence is not peace. That is not love. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm talking about real relationships where there's real love there and you suffer with each other. I'm talking about the relationships where your best friend gives you a call at 3 a.m. and you have to wake up and take because they're having a panic attack and you have to talk to them for two hours to calm them down. You miss half a night's of sleep. I'm talking about that real suffering where your spouse has a parent in the on their deathbed, and they have to go to them every day for weeks, and you're just stuck taking care of the kids every day for weeks, but you're suffering with them because you love them. Out of love, this is not abuse. This is suffering. I'm talking about when someone in the church is going through something, and you have to really take away, you have to sacrifice from your own life to meet their needs. That's that real kind of relationship. That's that uncomfortable kind of relationship. And those are relationships that matter. Paul talks about another relationship that matters, or, or another thing that makes relationships matter, and that is eagerness to forgive. You see that in the next verse. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And if you just skip ahead to the last verse, verse 7, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Real relationships are eager to forgive. 
Real relationships are not grace-forgetful. Eager to forgive, they are not grace-forgetful. And what I mean with grace-forgetful, and you guys are really going to, I think you guys are going to get this on a very practical sense. Grace-forgetful, let me just give you a scenario. <sighs> Say that one day, you know, your child is having a rough time, you know, getting, getting out of bed, getting to school and stuff like that, and so you have to skip breakfast and stuff, and so you just to get them to school and everything. And then you have, you go to work, and you have this huge meeting after lunch, but you need to eat lunch because you're starving, because you missed breakfast. So you're like, what's, I didn't have time to pack anything, so I just got to go to the closest place, Taco Bell. And so you have to go to Taco Bell, I know, Beth, but you have to go to Taco Bell during your lunch, and you have to get it, and you're just running late. You hit every light on the way there. You hit every bit of traffic. You have this huge meeting right after lunch. You need to get back to the office. It takes forever to get to the drive-thru. You finally get your Taco Bell. You're like leaving the parking lot, and you're like, I just got to eat this on the way because I got to get back to the office. I got to get there. So you are leaving the parking lot. You're trying to enter the highway. You have a taco in one hand. You have your Baja Blast on your knee. You have your hand on the wheel. You're like looking, trying to get on the freeway, and you just like gun it and swerve out there, and you just cut this guy off. You don't hit them, but you just like cut right in front of them and you know what does he do he just blares the horn at you you know and you're just like can't you just have grace on me for saying can't you just understand what i'm going through i have a taco in my hand right now don't you think i'm going through a lot i'm leaving a taco bell right beth you know i have a lot i have a lot going on right now just have a little bit of compassion have a little bit of grace can't you see i'm running late and stuff and they don't know any of that but get on the flip side you just bought your brand new car, brand new truck. You're just driving it. He's finally taking it on his first real drive as yours. And this idiot holding Taco Bell comes and swerves right in front of you, almost hits your brand new truck. And so you blare the horn. Can't they understand that you just bought this? Don't they know what it'd be like if they just hit this right now and you had to go get it fixed and you just spent all this time saving up for this and making this decision to buy this? You guys understand this. You understand that we all desire grace for ourselves. But yet we struggle to understand others. It reminds me of another passage in Scripture. When I first came to this church, when I first started working here six months ago, I know, six months, crazy. Um, Six months ago, Mike and Tim were going through um, a series on Matthew, on the parables in Matthew. It reminds me of another parable in there, Matthew 18, the unjust servant. Many of you guys know how the story goes, but I'll just give you a quick little synopsis of it. Peter begins this passage by saying, hey God, how many times do I have to forgive my enemy? Like, seven times, and he thought he was doing something with that. Like, he thought he was really, like, like being, like, really cool with that, because in Amos, it says you only have to forgive your enemy three times, so he was like, let me just double that, I'll add one. How many times do I have to forgive my enemy? Like, seven times? And Jesus looks at him, he's like, seven? What about 70 times seven? Which just means, you just keep on forgiving, Peter, and I'll tell you when to stop. You know, he just says, keep on forgiving and giving, and then he stamps this with a, he stamps this, this conversation with a parable. He talks about the unjust servant and the king. He talks about how the king was settling his debts. And the king brings up a servant that owes him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents, no one had that kind of money. Like, that's a ridiculous kind of money. No one would ever be able to pay back. And he says, hey, I got I to settle my debts. Pay me what you owe me. And that servant gets on his knees, begs him, please, have forgiveness, have passion, have grace, have mercy on me. And the king, overcome with compassion, says, okay, I won't you know, separate you from your family, throw you in prison, make you pay back those things. He would have to sell off his wife, his children. He would have to do everything just to pay this back, and he would never pay it back. And so the unjust servant's like, thank you, thank you, and he leaves. Now the unjust servant, and this is the reason why we call him unjust, he has to settle his own debts, and he is a servant. And that servant owes him 300 denarii. And that's about three months' wages. That's all that is. 
And so that servant comes forward to the unjust servant. The unjust servant says, I'm selling my debts, pay what you owe me. And that servant says, please, no, just give me a little bit of time, I'll have it for you. I just need a little compassion, a little bit of mercy, a little bit of grace, and I'll have it for you. And the unjust servant, not overcome with compassion, says, no, I need my money now. And he throws him in prison, takes him away from his life, from his family. He understands when the grace is needed for himself, but he doesn't understand when other people need grace. And we are so guilty of this. Now, of course, the king hears that. And the king throws the unjust servant in prison as well, and he's overcome with anger. Like, can't you just, why can't you wrap your head around this thing called grace? Because you needed it for yourself, but when someone else needed it from you, you couldn't give it. Paul David Tripp in New Morning Mercies, um, which is a devotional. And if you need a devotional to read that's like short, but really, really good, I would recommend this. Because I'm horrible with devotionals, but this one's like really, really good. He talked about this just this week while I was planning this. I was like, how topical. He talks about this. You see, in this situation, in Matthew 18, we're all the unjust servant. We celebrate God's mercy, but we scream at our children when they mess up. We sing of amazing grace, but we punish our spouses with silence when they offend us. We praise God for his love, but forsake a friendship because someone has been momentarily disloyal. We are thankful that we've been forgiven. We're thankful we've been forgiven, but say that a person who is suffering is suffering as a result of their decisions and is getting what they deserve. We bask in God's grace, but throw the law at others. That punched me in the face. Um, We're simply not that good at mercy because we tend to see ourselves as more deserving than the poor and more deserving than the needy. We're grace forgetful. And that's what real relationships are not. Real relationships are eager to forgive. They're quick to forgive, and they're eager to continue doing it over and over and over, because as human beings, we disappoint. We disappoint each other. You find that perfect person in your life, you think you're, you know, you're, they're going to always treat you right. They're going to disappoint you at some point. Your children will disappoint you. Children, your parents will disappoint you. We're all going to disappoint each other because we all have to deal with the sin nature inside of us. But real unity, a unity that reflects Christ, comes in the form of forgiving often because Jesus forgave you and still forgives you often, and he's eager to do so. And the last thing that real relationships are and real relationships are not comes a little bit later. We didn't read it, but we'll read it now. It is in Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. It is just a little bit past what we just read. It says, we have unity so that we may no longer be children tossed in... uh, Uh, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Remember, Paul is writing this because there's false teaching in the church. He continues, rather, speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who was the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Real relationships are truth and love in motion. Real relationships are truth and love in motion. Real relationships are not severity and coddling or manipulation and coddling or just abuse. Real relationships are truth and love and motion. Real relationships are not manipulation and coddling. Don't you guys know that like person who has that really fat cap? 
I mean, like, just think in your head. Like, think about that one person you know that has that, like, really, really obese cat. I feel like I grew up around a lot of people that had just, like, really obese cats where I'm from. I don't know if that's a Virginia thing or not. But, um, the, and you know why they do it? They say, I love Fluffy so much. I love Fluffy so much. I just, I just can't help it. I just feed her whenever, whenever she's hungry. Whenever she meows, I just give her another tree or just give her another snack. And eventually they just grow, and their belly is, like, scraping the floor, and they're just, like, clawing their way towards their next meal. But that's really all they're living for. And they, they're on, like, the, the line of just immobility. I mean, they're just, they're just barely getting along. Fluffy is having a rough time at it because that's abuse. Abuse from love. But we see this in parenting as well. Because we are quick to either be super truthful or super loving, but it's hard for us to be both. You see those really loving parents, the ones that their child can do nothing wrong. In fact, their child usually does the most wrong. But their child also tends to strive for the least amount because there's always been a contentment for how you are and there's never been any pressure to be better. You see, that's a mistake in, in parenting and you guys recognize that. And you recognize on the other side, being too truthful, being too harsh. Those are the kids that have to walk on eggshells. Those are the kids that can't do anything right. Those are the kids always being pushed, always being pushed, and they feel distant. They never feel that love. I met, I've met a lot of kids on both sides in my short time of ministry. And I understand that it's hard to be both, but we have to strive to be better. You see that with your friendships. A lot of times we coddle our friendships way too much because we're afraid we're going to lose them or we're afraid we're going to offend someone so we don't call them out when they're wrong. A lot of times we can be too harsh on our friends and we wonder why they become distant with us and we never bring them that love. You see, real relationships are truth and love and motion. If you think of a bongo drum, you don't just beat one or the other, you beat both at the same time to create music. We have to speak in both truth and in love. And why do we do that? Paul talks about it right afterwards. He says, you do that so we can build each other up, so the body can work properly, built up in love. And it is painful, and it is hard to treat each other with truth and love. But that's how Jesus treated us. The gospel is unabashedly, unashamedly, even offensively truthful. It sits you down where you are, and it says that you're wrong. But it pairs that with perfect, passionate, long-suffering, forgiving love. That's how Jesus treats us. If we have unity, if we have real relationships, we should be treating others the same way that Jesus treated us and still continues to treat us. And so we have to ask two questions every time we come to a passage. We, we learn about the context. We have two final questions. What, from the context and from what we have read, teaches us, what does this teach us about God? God desires a church, a people, a unity, universally a church that has the same unity that he has with himself. God is in perfect truth and love with the Son, and the Son's in perfect truth and love with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is in perfect truth and love with God. You see, I talked about this last time for a little bit. I just love this phrase by Tony Evans. He calls it a Trinitarian love fest. I mean, that is what God is in at all times. And that's what he asked the church to be, the universal church worldwide, the local church, Project Re3, the individual representative of the church, you, to the people around you, dealing with each other in perfect truth and love, only to bring back glory to the Father. And now what is this knowledge about the Bible? And what is this knowledge 
about God teach us about ourselves. It says unity is the gospel, and we need to be replicating the gospel to others. We need to be people who are willing to suffer for the sake of others. We need to be people who are willing to forgive, even though we know they're going to hurt us again in the future. We need to be people who are willing to walk in truth and love and not communicate with either or, but with both. God desires perfect unity, and that is why relationships matter. And if they don't matter to you, then please reevaluate what your relationships look like. Do you have that in your relationships? Are you willing to suffer for those around you, for those in the church, for your family, for your friends, for your coworkers? Are you willing to forgive often? Are you willing to be eager to forgive, quick to do it? And are you willing to talk to them with truth and love and act, with, and act around them with truth and love, no matter how uncomfortable, no matter how painful or awkward it gets? And these are big things to ask. These are big things to ask. But only when you're willing to accept the challenge of those things do you find yourself in unity, do you find yourself in relationships that really do matter. And you never have to question that again. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this time together. Thank you that we can just come together and learn a little bit more about you, about your desire for us, about your desire for relationships that matter, for perfect unity, unity of love, unity of truth. God, give us a heart burden for our brothers and sisters around us, not one that just focuses on me, 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 but on you, 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 God. And if we're focused on you, God, all of our acts, all of our speech will reflect you and your perfect truth, your perfect love, your perfect forgiveness, and your perfect suffering. God, you hung, you had your son hang on two nails just for us because he loved us. He was willing to suffer for us. Let us be willing to suffer and form beautiful relationships with others. In your name I pray, amen.